This is where companies that made and sold the programming that's on your satellite or cable television or the hardware or software that makes it possible to get all these channels in your home. This is where they got together with the cable TV systems who provide your local service. My job was to try to get the news outlets, the trade and consumer press who covered these conventions to cover my client's business. So I'd come up with things to uh, talk about during these conventions. The vendors would build these very elaborate display booths to show off their products and their services to their potential customers. And one of the things that they did to enhance the draw of their booths was to get celebrities sometimes to come into these booths and make appearances. They'd sign autographs, they'd do things like that. Most of the time, these celebrities had something to do with the products, but not always. And the stars of the programs on many of the cable channels would show up at these conventions. Now, through the years, I met a lot of people you'd probably know, names you'd recognize, many more who were minor celebrities that you may or may not know. Harry Carey, for example, was the announcer for the Chicago Cubs who were carried on WGN, which was one of my larger clients. Of course, WGN also carried Bozo the Clown. He's the one on the right in this picture, <laughs> just in case you're confused. Ted Turner was the founder of TBS, TNT, and CNN. Gary Owens, now some of you who are older may remember Gary Owens. He was an announcer on one of the satellite radio channels distributed by one of my clients. Those of you who are old enough will remember him from Laugh-In in the 1960s. He was the announcer on Laugh-In. I met everybody from Mickey Mantle to Willie Mays to Vanna White. I met the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation. I met 70s pop music star Todd Rundgren, the founder of the Discovery Channel, the founder of ESPN, many more people during these years. The other thing I did, which was kind of fun, was to go to some of these booths and collect the various and sundry memorabilia that they were handing out, like my basketball collector's cards that you see on screen here, as well as my Discovery Magazine cover story. Now, it's a funny story. It's amazing how many of our kids from TCF come into my office and they see this and they say, were you really a World War II flying ace? <laughs> how old do you think I am, kids? I also knew people who worked for other networks, and once I was visiting a friend in another booth, and up walked Mr. T. Now, he was a minor celebrity in the 1980s because he starred in a mediocre but very popular TV action show called The A-Team. He was also in the movie Rocky III. You still sometimes see him on TV even today. Now, Mr. T arrived to do an appearance in the booth where my friend worked, and we were standing there, me and my friend, and Mr. T walks up, and he thought I was waiting to meet him, which I really wasn't. So he looks at me, and he says, Come on now, don't be shy. Come get your picture taken with Mr. T. So I did. <laughs> now here's the rather long-winded explanation, the reason for uh, this illustration that we're doing this morning. Mr. T was famous for one particular phrase. Who remembers? Uh, <laughs> A lot of very culturally aware or watch too much TV people out there. I pity the fool. That's right. John? I pity the fool goes home crying to his mother. I pity the fool goes home crying to his mother. That's right. And he would always add something to the end of it. It would be, I pity the fool, and then he'd say something after that. So, at last we get to the point of our illustration here. I pity the fool. I pity the fool. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, the context of this passage is a defense of the resurrection, where Paul is telling the believers in Corinth that if there is no resurrection, there's no hope of eternal life. And if our only hope in Christ has to do with what we have in this life, we are to be pitied. I pity the fool. There's a rather disturbing and ultimately sad trend in some segments of the church today that relates to this idea. Let me read a few quotes that highlight this line of thinking. There's this. Based on the scriptures, I believe Jesus primarily came not to proclaim a way out of hell for some after death, but rather a way into a better life for all before death. His message was not about going to heaven after history, but about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in history. And then there's this. Salvation is the entire universe being brought back into harmony with its maker. This has huge implications for how people present the message of Jesus. Yes, Jesus can come into our hearts, but we can join a movement that is as wide and as big as the universe itself. Rocks and trees and birds and swamps and ecosystems. God's desire is to restore all of it. The goal isn't escaping this world, but making this world the kind of place God can come to. And God is remaking us into the kind of people who can do this kind of work. Now, as I began to think about this message, and I had, a, I think, a fairly clear sense of God's leading, two passages of Scripture came to mind. The first is the one we just looked at a moment ago. Let's look at it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The other passage is the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. That's where we get the title of this morning's message. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Let me read that. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, the word compassion in this passage of Scripture is a little bit different word, a different Greek word than the word translated pity in 1 Corinthians that we just looked at. But I find it interesting that Jesus' compassion on the crowds who were following him relates to what we're looking at this morning. So let's spend a few minutes exploring these couple of passages and related passages of Scripture to examine this idea a bit more. We see we have these contemporary voices with a lot of influence who are telling us that salvation has as much or more to do with making this life better, making this world the kind of place God can come to, than about saving our souls apart from eternity with Christ. We have people telling us that it's not about seeing people get saved. It's about bringing the kingdom here now. Yet we have the Apostle Paul telling us, essentially, our hope is not in this life. We have Jesus lamenting that there's a harvest that's plentiful and not enough godly shepherds or laborers to show these harassed and helpless people their way. We have in other places in the gospel, Jesus telling us that his kingdom is not of this world. But what is this harvest? It's a harvest of souls. 
It's a harvest of souls. There's no other way you can read this passage in any other kind of understanding. The harvest is not about helping the poor in a temporal sense. The harvest is not about freeing the oppressed in a temporal sense. It's not about feeding the hungry, again, in a temporal sense. It's about souls being saved from sin and death. As laborers in the harvest, and as living answers to the prayer that Jesus asked us to pray, it's about our faithful witness to the awesome truth of what Jesus has already done to make a way for us into eternal life. It's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus has saved us from hell. The harvest is what this church, TCF, is all about. The training of laborers for the harvest. The releasing of laborers into God's harvest. We exist for the express purpose of growing in Christ together and as we grow into useful and effective laborers, glorifying Him by going into the harvest and helping others to go into the harvest. In our church neighborhood, in our individual neighborhoods, our individual circles of influence at work or at school, wherever that might be, and literally around the world, among those who are like sheep without a shepherd. The unique component of what we do as a fellowship and what we do as individuals who are a vital part of this fellowship is laboring in the harvest. And the harvest is about seeing people saved. Yes, our individual work in the harvest might look different for each of us. We have different roles. Some of us plant. Some of us plow the ground. Some of us have the joy of being there at the moment of reaping of that harvest. But we're all a part of this, or we should be. Now also, before I go any further, let me be very clear about what I'm not saying here this morning. The same voices that are telling us that Jesus came primarily to make this life better extrapolate that idea to mean that our primary job as believers is to help the poor and the needy in various contexts. Please, please don't hear me say this morning we should ignore people's needs just to preach the gospel just to see people get saved. Scripture is very clear, absolutely clear, about our responsibility to help those in need. Ephesians tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our works, yet it also tells us that we are created for good works. James tells us that faith without works is dead or useless. So it's a significant difference in emphasis and perspective and perhaps ultimately priority. Yes, as followers of Christ, we can and should serve the poor, help the needy in whatever context that might mean. However, this is a byproduct of, this is a result of, this is the practical outworking of the gospel. Such work is not the gospel itself. The good news means that we are saved by grace through faith, and one result of the good news means that our changed lives, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel at work in us, will lead to good works. And those good works will adorn or make attractive the teaching of the gospel. Titus chapter 2 tells us that our behavior should be such that we illustrate the gospel. Titus chapter 2 verse 10 says, 
so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. The New American Standard of that verse says, showing all good faith, faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, this particular passage in Titus was written to slaves. The admonition being that Christian slaves should be such good, responsible, and hard-working slaves that they illustrate the gospel with their lives. Such living keeps Christians from providing any legitimate grounds for the gospel, the word of God, to be reviled. More positively, such living highlights the attractiveness of the gospel, adorns, as it says in verse 10 in the New American Standard. In keeping with the overall thrust of the letter, this kind of living proves the gospel. Another commentary says, even slaves, low as is their status, should not think the influence of their example a matter of no consequence to religion. How much more those in a high position. His love in being our Savior is the strongest ground for our adorning his doctrine by our lives. So good works adorn or make attractive the gospel, but it's not the other way around. The gospel is still primary. The good news of salvation through the finished work of Jesus on the cross is still, as Scripture tells us, of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15.3, we read this sometimes in the context of communion. It says, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's important. That's of first importance, we hear from Paul. If we look back at the passage we read from Matthew, verse 36 says, when he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus had compassion on them, and yes, he cared about their physical well-being in the here and now. The passage also tells us that he was healing their sicknesses. He was healing their diseases. So clearly he cared. But specifically, his compassion was related to the reality that they had no spiritual guidance. The religious leaders who should have been their shepherds were keeping the sheep from following the true shepherd. Some versions of this passage of Scripture say that they were wearied and fatigued. And you have to say, well, is this a physical weariness? The context tells us that it isn't, at least primarily. The burden that made them weary was that they were weighed down by the teachings of the Pharisees, the rules, the regulations, which made them feel hopeless about actually finding a way to God. So Jesus pities them and was concerned for them. He was moved with compassion on them, not upon a temporal account, as Matthew Henry says, as he pities the blind, the lame, and the sick, but upon a spiritual account. He was concerned to see them ignorant and careless and ready to perish for lack of vision. It was pity to souls that brought him from heaven to earth and there to the cross. Misery is the object of mercy, and the miseries of sinful, self-destroying souls are the greatest miseries. Christ pities those most that pity themselves least, so should we. The most Christian compassion is compassion to souls. It is most Christ-like. I like that last sentence there. The most Christian compassion is the compassion that we have for souls. 
it is most, it is the most Christ-like kind of compassion that we can have. Jesus' miracles gave his words credibility. Were there people there who were there mostly just to get their physical needs met? Probably. But most of them followed Jesus. They listened to him because they wanted and needed and they knew it help for their souls. So what did Jesus say to do? He said to pray. To pray specifically for more who are willing to help these people with their deepest spiritual needs. He did not say to find doctors to help heal. He did not say to find food to help feed. He did not say to pray for money to help the poor. And again, it's not that those things are not important because they are. It's not that we shouldn't do those things to adorn the gospel. But what was Jesus' mission? Why did he come to earth? Early in the first gospel, we see it clearly stated by an angel announcing Jesus' birth to his mother. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We see Jesus' purpose outlined in many other places in the world. Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The good news is about our salvation from sin and death, our rescue from God's righteous wrath. That was and is Jesus' mission, and by extension, that is our mission. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Note this about this passage of Scripture. The disciples asked Jesus when he would restore the kingdom to Israel because they concluded from his resurrection and from the promise of his spirit that the messianic era had dawned and the final salvation of Israel was imminent. However, they were probably still expecting the restoration of a military and a political kingdom that would drive out the Roman armies and restore national sovereignty to Israel, as it happened numerous times in the Old Testament. Jesus corrected them, not by rejecting the question, but by telling them in Acts 1.8, which we just read, that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, not in order to triumph over Roman armies, but to spread the good news of the gospel throughout the world. In other words, the return is in God's timing. In the meantime, there are other key things 
believers are to do. And that's one of the key things we believers are to do. We are to be his witnesses. The idea of bringing the kingdom of God to the here and now is a major theme of those who call themselves missional. And that, by the way, that word missional is a buzzword that unfortunately causes my spiritual radar screen to light up when I hear it or see it written. I say unfortunately because at first glance, it seems to be only a different way to say what we've often said here at TCF about what we are about, missions-minded. But further examination, especially if you read some of the writings of these people who regularly use the word missional, tells us why it's so important that we define terms, that we understand what people mean when they say specific words. Now, everybody doesn't use this word with the same sense, but often when you see this word missional, it means the kingdom of God brought to the here and now, brought to earth now. And we have to recognize that, yes, there is a sense in Scripture of the kingdom of God being here and now. That's the already here part. But there's another sense that we must always hold in tension in Scripture that the kingdom of God is also not yet. The kingdom of God is where God rules and where His uh, rule is honored. And though we do see that to some degree here on earth, it's clear that this totally it's not totally here yet. So we note that Jesus said in John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. But it's also clear that many missional folks seem to believe that it should be today. And that leads almost inevitably to a different non-gospel emphasis in their life and in their mission. Here's one explanation of this line of thinking. Missional churches are in these days. Social action is hot. Evangelism is regarded as too aggressive, as being just like a sales pitch, too modern, cold, and logical, or condescending. In other words, my God is better than yours. As one author said, your job is to bless people. That's the covenant. Don't have an evangelism strategy. Have a blessing strategy. Now the emphasis is on human trafficking, AIDS, poverty, the homeless, and the environment to bring Christ's kingdom of peace, justice, and blessing to the world is the mission of God for the church. Now clearly, we can take some good things from this emphasis. So we don't want to just dismiss all this out of hand. We can take the good things like a very passionate concern for social problems, a real desire to help the least of these, uh, sex trafficking, oppression and genocide in Darfur, AIDS, the homeless, Christians can and should be involved in helping with these kinds of issues. And you know what? I'm glad that this church is. And I'm glad that there are people in this church who either as part of their jobs or part of their ministry are involved with these kinds of things. But you know what? Think about it. I don't know of any Christians who don't think that the gospel has social implications. No one is for genocide. No one is for sex trafficking or poverty or malnutrition or homelessness. Even Hollywood is concerned about these things. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be. It, it would be a sinful attitude. And I have to tell you, sometimes I have to guard my cynical heart against this attitude to say that I don't want anything to do with something just because it's popular among the cultural elite. 
especially when those things are worth caring about. This may be a rare instance where cultural values also line up with Christian values. Yet, what is it that makes the church unique? What makes the church unique is our deep commitment to, more than anything else, knowing Christ and making Him known. Yes, the Bible talks a lot about the poor and the downtrodden, but the vast majority of Scripture is about our redemption. It's about how God saves us from our rebellion. It's about how sin is atoned for and how we can become children of God. If we emphasize or if we only tell people that God will make their lives better in the here and now, if we avoid mentioning the eternal consequences of an individual's response or their lack of response to Jesus, we lose the main mission of the church. I recognize that there are good ways and bad ways to do this. I realize Christians have been and can be obnoxious and lack sensitivity when it comes to attempting to share the gospel. And I also agree that it's absolutely vital that we demonstrate and embody and live out the love of Christ. We've heard from this pulpit more than once before that sometimes we need to earn the right to be heard. And I believe that. But think about that statement, we need to earn the right to be heard. What does that imply? It implies that at some point we want to be heard, right? That implies we have something important to say. Proclaiming the redemption available in and through Jesus is the main mission of the church. Something I've noticed in the missional stream is almost an embarrassment about Christianity. Clearly there are many things that Christians have done that are indeed embarrassing. We don't have to list those. But this embarrassment seems to extend beyond the clear sins of the church or individuals in the church, individual Christians. This embarrassment seems to include some of the things that are very basic to the gospel, things like God's hatred towards sin, things like God's judgment and wrath, especially things like hell, even things like the way God chose to save us, the blood of Jesus. That seems embarrassing to some of these people. People seem embarrassed by these things, yet Scripture is clear that these things are essential elements of the gospel. The passage from Romans we read just a few moments ago illustrates this. And another verse in Romans makes it clearer still what our position is to be as believers when thinking about the gospel. Romans 1.16 tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If we're ashamed of the gospel, if we're ashamed of all that it includes, and that would include the reality that we are hopeless sinners, that would include the reality that we are unable to do enough good to save ourselves. That would include the reality that our lostness is so great that it took the shedding of the sinful or the sinless blood of Christ. It took the shedding of his blood to pay the penalty for our sin. If we're ashamed of these things, it's no wonder we make excuses for God. We looked earlier at 1 Corinthians 15, 19, 
which says, again, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, the interesting thing here is that it says not only are we to be pitied if all our hope is in Christ, and it has, all it has to do is what he'll do for us in the here and now, but we are to be more pitied than all men. Why does Paul say believers would be more to be pitied than anyone in the world if there were only earthly value to Christianity? In Paul's day, Christianity often brought a person persecution, ostracism from family, and in many cases, poverty. There were few tangible benefits from being a Christian in that society. It was certainly not a step up the social or career ladder. More important is the fact that if Christ had not been resurrected from the dead, Christians would not be forgiven of their sins or have any hope of eternal life. If what Christians believe is a lie, we would be pitiful because we would be going through such suffering for no purpose. Fortunately, that is not the case. In the original language of the New Testament, the same word that's translated pitied in this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 is used in only one other verse. It's used in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, where Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And he says, you, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The words of Jesus here to the church at Laodicea emphasize in a little bit different context what we've been looking at this morning. If we reduce the gospel to what we have in this life, we're pitiful. The reality is that material wealth often equals spiritual poverty. So having material things, all of our worldly needs met, whether they're met abundantly or just barely, does not automatically mean we are spiritually rich. This passage is clearly an indictment of the materially rich. However, you don't have to be wealthy to be complacent, to think you don't need anything beyond your material needs. The sad thing here in this verse in Revelation, is that these people were pitiable, but they didn't know it. So even though we're talking about two different groups of people here in these two different passages, one, a group of people in Corinth who believed in Jesus, but they were supposing how awful it would be if what they t believed turned out to be false. And the other was a group who have believed but grown complacent, the Laodiceans. Both are pitiable because having their temporal, material needs met is clearly not all they need. There is a worse poverty than material, and that is a spiritual poverty. In Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 34, we read, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So getting all the material needs of this world met 
brings no lasting benefit. The Word of God is absolutely clear about how we're to treat other people, how we're to do good works, how we are to adorn or help illustrate the doctrine of God our Savior, the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, in our zeal, and it's a worthy zeal, but in our zeal to help the least of these in their temporal struggles, let's never, let's never, let's never lose sight of the harvest. Let's never lose sight of the harvest. Let's never lose sight of the reality that we are pitiful fools if we hope in Christ only for what He can do for us in this life, or worse still, we pass along that idea to others. Let's do good works, yes. But first and foremost, let the church be the church. Let the church be the church. In closing, let's remember this from Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your call to pray to send laborers into the harvest. And we thank you for the clear truth that if we only have hope in Christ for what can happen in this life, how Jesus will change this life, we're to be pitied. And not just to be pitied, but to be pitied more than all men. But Father, we thank you that this is not true, that we do have hope beyond this life. Father, that your gospel means we are saved from sin and death. We are saved from hell. And we are grateful, Father, for your amazing grace that washes us clean from sin and saves us from eternity without you. Help us to keep this at the forefront, Father, of our ministry. Father, even as you lead and guide us into the good works you call us to do, we pray, Heavenly Father, we'd never lose sight of the harvest. We'd never lose sight of your desire, your hope to bring more people into your eternal kingdom, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.